Hey, one more thing before you go. Are you curious about what it's like to work for the New York City Police Department? Or wonder what it was like to be at Ground Zero during 9-11? How would that experience shape your career? Have you ever wondered what really happens at a crime scene? Or is there a funny side to cop culture? In this episode, you're going to get insight into the camaraderie and the sense of purpose that comes with being part of the NYPD as we have a conversation with a retired detective. We're going to uncover the down and dirty about being a cop in the Big Apple. Stay tuned for this unique opportunity to learn the ins and outs of being on the beat in the city that never sleeps. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Vic Ferrari. Great name, by the way. A retired 20-year member of the New York City Police Department and author of six books, including NYPD Through the Looking Glass, stories from inside America's largest police department, the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crimes, and Chaos, and NYPD Law and Disorder, just to name a few. He shares his journey as a cop in New York City with remarkable attention to detail combined with a sarcastic flair. Vic exposes the good, the bad, and the ugly of America's largest police department, Welcome to the show, Vic. Hey, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on your show. What an amazing career that you've had. I, you know, I, as we talked before we come on here, most of my listeners and viewers know that, uh, you know, I'm a retired police sergeant, but, you know, I was just in Colorado. And although we were busy, um, I think you got a leg up on me on that area. New York City is a three-ring circus. I mean, it's a city that never sleeps, like you said earlier. I mean, you've got nine million people packed into five boroughs. It's just, it's just nonstop action and you can be as busy as you want. Well, you know, it, I think that the diversity that belongs into New York city, I mean, there are some questions I, I told you, I used to have a, a partner and I got it worked underneath me when I was a sergeant, uh, that was a New York city cop. And we had a lot of conversations, but there were some that I never got to ask him. So I, I would like to explore a little bit of that with you today, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Ask away. Um, first of all, where'd you grow up? Uh, I'm born and raised in New York City. I, I lived in the borough of the Bronx for for most of my adult life. So now the the you said that the New York City is made up of five different boroughs. Yeah, Bronx, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens, and Manhattan. Now the boroughs are they individual? When you say boroughs, just help me understand and help the listeners and viewers understand. A borough is that like a county, or is that like a city, or is that like a suburb? They're all counties, okay. but they're all. They're all, they're all counties. They all have a borough president, but they're all encompassed by uh, City Hall in Manhattan, the mayor of New York. Um, New York City Police Department, do you cover all of those? You either work at Brooklyn District or a Queens District or a Manhattan District, or do each one of those have their own law enforcement? No. So the, so the New York City Police Department encompasses all the five boroughs. There's 30,000 members, 30 to 35,000 members at any given time. There's 77 police stations or precincts wow. distributed throughout the five boroughs. I mean, I worked in the Bronx the vast majority of my career. I know there's 12 in the Bronx. Manhattan, I think, has, has the most. Um, and but they're all it's all each and each borough has what's called the borough, which is the central office. And they report to Police Plaza, which is in Lower Manhattan, or Police Headquarters. So, is, um, what I mean, that must what is that like 30, 30 or forty thousand cops? 
Yeah, between 30 and 35. Well, not cops, but I mean, when I say members, I mean, yes, the vast majority is police officers, detectives, sergeants, lieutenants, and then you start going up to upper management. Yeah, the upper management, the ones that sit and make all the rules. and Yeah, they're masters of the universe. Exactly, exactly. Um, so what was your family like? I, I think you, in information I got from you, you call yourself a survivor of an Irish father and an Italian mother. I'm familiar with the Italian side. Yeah, I mean, growing up in the Bronx in the, uh, the 70s and 80s, it, my neighborhood was Irish and Italian with a little bit of the mafia sprinkled in. And my parents were what was considered at the time a mixed marriage because the Irish and the Italians didn't really play nice with each other because you got to remember the Irish came to the United States first and they weren't treated well. Irish need not apply and the potato famine. Then the Irish started getting civil service jobs. And then, you know, there was basically the civil servants of New York City and here come the Italians and they weren't great fans of them. So you had a lot of uh, static between the two ethnic groups. But then in the 1960s, they started putting the differences aside. And like I said, in my one of my books, Red Hair and Freckles married Olive Skin and Swarthy. And I'm a product of that. And a cop. So it works. You got a little bit of Irish, a little bit of Italian, and it works. That was a big combination in my neighborhood. And I went to a Catholic, an all boys Catholic high school in the Bronx. And there were a lot of Catholic high schools back then. And my graduating class of 250 boys, 40, just my year, 40 went into the New York City Police Department. Holy smokes. So Catholic high schools were basically like produce cops and firemen the way Penn State produces linebackers for the NFL. Yeah, that works too. <laughs> I, um, <coughs> excuse me. I um, have heard that the, the two best jobs in New York City are cops and firefighters. I don't know about cops. I, I definitely know the fire department because, you know, the fire department, they had better schedule. Most of those guys, I mean, there are cops that have, own their own businesses or have side gigs, but the fire department, it was almost expected. And most of the firemen were in the trades, plumbers, electricians, and with their hours, I, and I don't exactly remember what it was, but I mean, you know, they're in the when there's not a fire, they're sleeping in the station house, and they're off for more time than we are. Yeah. So that enabled them, you know, to run successful businesses out of their homes. That's the way it was in Colorado. The firefighter firefighters got to work like nine days a month because they worked twenty four hour shifts and stayed in the you know in the fire department when they did it. So they worked nine days a month, and they had. All this other time, we were always jealous of that. Although, I loved it when they cooked because we got to visit the, go up there and you know, put out a call saying, hey, we have chow. And you could swing by and grab a great meal. Yeah, we had that too. I mean, because in New York City, the precincts, I mean, have so many cops in them. And the busier the precinct, the more cops you have. So a small precinct like out in Staten Island with this three precincts, you only have maybe 100 cops per precinct. But you know, in, in Manhattan, like Manhattan North, Manhattan South, a larger precinct, you can have four or 500 people in there. Mm -hmm. So, or a busy precinct in the Bronx, like the 4-4 or the 4-6, where they're turning out 30 cops a night. Everybody would kick in five bucks, and whoever was doing station house security or the TS operator would go out and get supplies, and they'd make chili. Or, I mean, we used to do that too, but I know what you mean. Like, I know a lot of the cops that would get a foot post somewhere in the middle of nowhere if there was a fire they'd kick up a couple of bucks and go over to the firehouse to chill out and get something to eat. 
It always worked. It was always a good, always a good night during those time periods. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm just getting over a chest cold, so please forgive my cough. No problem. <coughs> Doesn't always. It's not always conducive of uh, having a conversation, but. <coughs> so you, um, when did you get uh, interested in law enforcement? Can I ask? Yeah, I knew what I wanted to do when I was five years old. I knew I wanted to be a police officer and a New York City police detective. I mean, growing up in the 70s and 80s in New York, it was all cop shows. And most of them were about the New York City Police Department. Around the corner from the movie theater, the local movie theater was a precinct. So my mom used to take me when I was a little boy. I was fascinated with the police cars. I'd watch how the cops interacted in front of the station house, the way they leaned back with their hand on the butt of their gun. And then by age 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall and run around the neighborhood trying to find fugitives in the local deli or the bank. So I knew what I wanted to do. I mean, my parents thought I was out of my mind. They always were trying to get me into the trades, be a plumber, an electrician, or go to college, but wasn't interested. And by 20, I took the police exam. And by 21, I was in the police academy. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that it, people always ask me that question as well as I had to ask you. They always say, why do you want to be a cop? You know, especially nowadays because the copying has changed quite a bit with the perception of the public and how they're interacting with cops. But when I was a cop, I mean, when I wanted to be a cop, uh, I, have a, I grew up in a dysfunctional family and I had two alcoholic parents and uh, the cops were called a lot to the house. So when they'd show up, it always fascinated me because they'd come over there, they'd calm things down, they separate my parents, they'd take care of the situation, so to speak. And, you know, I kind of grew up in that environment. So I kind of went, yeah, I think I want to do that for a living. That's where mine came from. I thought, you know, maybe I can contribute back as they did, you know, uh, when I was growing up and that uh, I was fascinated with how they did that. And I had a few of them that took me out to the police car and then got to sit in the front seat and flip the lights and play with the siren. I thought, you know... I think I want to do, and uh, you know, I, I did the same thing after I got out of high school. Um, I went to college immediately for criminal justice, and uh, started learning criminal justice from that perspective. I don't know what it is in New York. Uh, I'm assuming you have to be 21 in New York. Uh, I think it's 20 now. 20 now, um, Colorado. You have to be 21 to be a cop. So I did university for college for a couple of years. And then I worked for like Wells Fargo and cooked and busboy and dishwasher, you name it, up until I had the time to be able to take the, the police exam and uh, uh, kind of took the same route from that perspective. But getting into it, loved it from the minute that I started it. It was other than working graveyard shifts, you know, that was kind of eh, for a while it was was uh, I didn't like that. But uh, eventually I learned to like working midnight or swing shift into graveyard shift. And um, that seemed to be the best hours. You can take a, a mid shift and come in the, in the middle of a swing shift and go home like about four o'clock in the morning, which worked out perfectly because you got all the action, you got all the business, and then uh, you go home and get to sleep a little bit normal. Yeah, uh, growing up in the Bronx was like a criminal justice immersion course. I mean, I, I saw crime all the time. And I mean, I lived in a halfway decent neighborhood, but you just saw things constantly. Yeah. I, mean, you know, I, I, I remember as a boy, you know, like six or seven years old. You know, we lived right off the Cross Bronx Expressway, and I remember a guy walked past our house, and a couple of minutes later, he comes running down the block with a case of beer over his shoulder, and I hear "Stop, stop!" 
And the guy tried running across eight lanes of highway, the Cross Bronx Expressway, and he got blasted by a car and beer all over the place killed him. And uh, I remember my father telling me, all right, go inside. <laughs> my, fa I, my father said something funny, like, well, he's never going to do that again. Just go inside. <laughs> so, you know, I saw a lot of things as an early age. And then to touch upon what you said about the different shifts of being a cop, I don't know how it is in Colorado, but in New York, when I first started, we had what was called the nine squad charts. So you would do eight to four, a week of eight to fours, four to twelves, eight to four, four to twelve, four to twelve, midnight, rinse and repeat. And then about, and I think it was probably the worst thing the NYPD ever did was around 19, the early 90s, they went to steady tours. And what they really, what they did was they created three different police departments within the police department. And like in the New York City Police Department, and I, I, I'm not trying to paint all cops in New York with the same brush, but I mean, everybody knows this. The day shift is usually the lazy people or the people that work side gigs. And those are the report takers. They're not looking. It's usually the, the older people. It's the older veterans. And they'll show up at a burglary call a couple of minutes late. They'll take the report. They're not looking to set the world on fire. Four to 12 is the kids. That's where they, you know, in New York, it's it, there's just so much action on the four to 12s. That's where they throw the rookies. And you're racing around answering 30, 40 jobs a night. You're eating in the police car. You really don't have time sometimes to take your meal hour. And you'll learn it's on the job training. It's baptism by fire. And then the midnight shift, I like to call for crime. And that's big game hunting. Because as my father used to say, and probably a lot of fathers used to say, anything after 11 o'clock, there's nothing good going on. And what do you have after 11 o'clock at night driving around? Cops, cabs, and drunks. And bad people looking to do something. So that's usually when, you know, these horrific crimes take place or cops are walking into the station house with Uzis. There's all sorts of stuff going on. So, but what the NYPD did was when they went to these shifts, it broke up the camaraderie in the department because you had guys working in a station house that didn't, you know, you worked a day shift, you might've seen a guy's name tag that did four to 12s. And unless you guys aren't using the same car every day, like you're handing him or her, their, your keys, you don't even know these people. So they're really, you know, information really didn't get exchanged. You know, patterns really weren't discussed because you had three different shifts going. That's kind of what we did in Colorado. Um, I worked for two different departments in Colorado. One was a sheriff's department and then one was a police department. And uh, pretty much the same thing. The only difference would be that we ran three-month shifts. So you do day shift for three months, a swing shift for three months, and then mids for three months. And then they had uh, uh, an, another shift that was kind of an overlapping that went from like a six, seven in the evening, and it ran to like three or four in the, uh, four in the morning, the next morning. And that was kind of a cover shift, uh, especially during the summertime. And that's kind of, that's the one that I like doing the most because I got a little bit of the swing shift. I got a little bit of the, you know, the you know, tag and bag on the uh, midnight shift. And then I uh, still was able to go home and get some decent rest, you know, before it started all over again. But then they started rotating every three months, and that was a pain in the ass, like major pain in the ass. Went back to the same thing. I mean, we pretty much knew each other because our departments weren't as large as the NYPD, so you would be familiar with everybody. But it, it was still kind of a, you know, every three months you'd, you you kind of have to readjust to the shift again, which was really not cool. Not cool from yeah. that perspective. Um, yeah. 
Oh, so so in New York, like in the precinct, you had specialized units like that would overlap, like an anti-crime team, which I worked in for a while, which is plain clothes. We would do six at night till two in the morning or 10 in the morning till six at night. So we would overlap with the shift changes in case the bad guys figured out, well, there's going to be that three or five, three to 10 minutes we can pull something off because the cops are going to be handing each other keys and, and, and gassing up their vehicles. Mm-hmm and no one's minding the store. Also, every borough has what's called a task force unit, which can be up to two, 300 cops. And they're citywide in marked uniform cars. And um, those guys, same thing, six at night till two in the morning. I mean, the, the hours might've changed, but they're definitely mm-hmm. there to make sure, you know, if something goes down, you still have radio cars out there that'll that'll respond. Now, did you, from, you know, I mean, most of the time when we watch TV, the majority of what we see on TV and I'm just trying to help our viewers understand the majority of what we see on TV through these cop shows, especially New York cops, most of them are walking a beat. So do the majority of cops walk a beat in New York City or is it, is it a combination between patrol cars and walking a beat? It depends on the precinct. So, all right, so when you're a rookie cop, when you come, well, things have changed, but when I got hired, I went into a field training unit in the South Bronx and I covered about three or four different precincts and every day you would get a foot post. So they would sprinkle the rookies around the South Bronx. And twice a day, a sergeant would pull up with a driver. He'd ask to see your book. He'd give you a scratch. And, uh, you know, if you had any questions, you know, he'd, he'd try to answer them for you. When you got to a precinct, yes, they had foot posts. But a lot of times that depended on what was going on with the vehicles or if you had a partner. Um, a lot of times when you're the r- rookie cop or, you know, NYPD, a, a precinct might get like 15 or 20 rookies after a graduating class from the police academy. Well, there's not enough cars to go around or some commands, rightfully so, they, they don't want to put rookies together immediately. They want to put them with a seasoned veteran. If there's not veterans working, they put them on foot somewhere and they usually put them, unless you screw up and, and they're going to punish you and put you in the middle of nowhere, they're going to put you in a high crime area where they're dealing drugs, or they might put you in a shopping area to deter shoplifting. And of course, they want their parking tickets. So they want you out there writing tickets and moving traffic along. But you learn a lot on a foot post. I mean, and every rookie cop eventually wants to get out of the weather and jump into a radio car. But And I didn't want to be on a foot post, but a lot of times I think back and I think that was probably some of of the best experience I gained by being out there by myself and being on foot and no one had a hide myself in plain view and you'll learn a lot of things while you're on foot you know that's interesting because that's how i learned how to do a walkabout um was from richie kleiner i told you about that guy that was a new york city sergeant uh, that came onto our department and uh he got me into uh parking the car and doing a walkabout and walking downtown and walking in the stores and you know talking to people sitting on the bench kind of observing and that kind of a thing and i uh I continued to do that throughout my career before I retired. Uh, that you know was a really integral part of my career. I enjoyed doing that. I like talking to the people, the shop owners, getting to know them a little bit more, which helped me. And you know, like you were just saying, it helped me because I understood a little bit more if I was driving down there and if something looked out of the ordinary, it was easier for me to tell because I had been in that shop walking, you know, walking a beat instead of instead of just driving around. I think it's a benefit, you know, from from my experience, although I think it's a benefit that we have the opportunity to do that as a cop. Um, how long were you on FTO? 
Field training. So the police academy, I mean, things have changed, but when I got hired in 87, the police academy was six months. It was six months of field training. And like I said, you either were on a foot post or every now and then you would jump in a car with a sergeant and he would handle all the shitty jobs because they wanted you to get the experience. So a DOA call, you were going on that. Um, a suicide, you were going on that. I mean, just the things that every uniform cop really doesn't want to deal with, you would get you you would get that. But going back to what we were talking about with the foot post, so you learn, like I said, you learned a lot of things you would never learn in a car. So say you've got a foot post and there's a bunch of guys dealing drugs in front of a bodega or on a corner, right? While you're out there, they're not going to deal drugs in front of you, but eventually someone's going to go on the roof and they're going to throw air mail at you to chase you off the corner. So you've got to figure out, all right, how am I going to catch these guys? And I'm in uniform. But you learn, you figure things out. So what you do is you flag down an ambulance a couple of blocks away and you sit in the back of an ambulance and you watch them deal drugs for 20 minutes and then you just kind of walk up to the corner and they think you just walked up there you didn't see what's going on and you know that the brown paper bag with the crack is behind this license plate and this guy just pitched to about 15 people or you flag down a gypsy cab with tinted windows you take your hat off and you sit or you go on a roof take your hat off with binoculars you cover your shield or you take your jacket off so they can't see it so there was a lot of tricks that you learn it's like well i can stand out here like a wooden indian in a cigar store or i can start making some arrests and get these clowns off this corner so you learn to become inventive yeah it works I, that's brilliant what a great opportunity uh, as a cop what a great opportunity because well when we all start we want to we want to go out and catch as many bad guys as we can i miss catching bad guys actually how long have you been retired i got out uh it's gonna be 16 years now 16 years. Uh, I'm working on 22 now. We just gave away our age, Vic. <laughs> I, I just think, turned 57. And I'm not too happy about it, but there's not really much I can do about it. You know, it, as we know, life can change in an instant. So I guess turning 57 is a, is a positive thing because the alternative would kind of suck. Um, I, turn, I just turned he, 63. You look good for 63. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Could you write me a note so I can give that to my wife? <laughs> Please. Um, <clears throat> let's talk. Let's talk. Some, you want to swap some stories? Sure. What do you want to hear? Well, what's the strangest thing that you ever, uh, that you ever encountered? What's one what of your most strangest uh, calls? You know, in New York, there's just so much going on. I mean, I've walked into a couple of homicides that were fresh, just happened. One, the killer was still in the room. Another time, a guy was decapitated, just finished decapitating a woman. And two of my coworkers shot him through a window and knocked him back into an apartment. Um, I've walked in on old people having sex in, in a short stay motel. I mean, that, I mean, and that's what my books are about. It's just, it's their short stories of the wild things that happen. Um, and, 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 you know, it's not just limited to creative criminals or emotionally disturbed people. Some, I mean, some of the cops I worked with were like real characters that, I mean, you would just believe that they were members of the New York City Police Department. You know, they had interesting side careers. I worked with a guy, I worked with two guys in their spare time. They were funeral directors and morticians. And I'm like, you don't get enough of that shit here? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, yeah, there was another guy that owned a, ba uh, a bagel place. We used to call him Bobby Bagels. He looked like a burnt Bialy. It, it just, you got to throw me in a direction. You you pick, point me in a direction well, and I can give you a 
sorry. I, I, I'll give you. I'll give you one of mine. We got a call that this guy was screaming and yelling and hot, like a domestic, and the neighbors were saying that there was just unholy yelling and screaming coming out of this guy's apartment. We couldn't get him to answer the door. Just tell him he kept yelling at us, "Get the fuck away from me! Get the fuck away from me! Stay away from me! You know, go away from the door!" Blah 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 blah. Then he said, I have a gun. So that changed the game just a little bit. So we got to peek into the window. And when we peeked into the window, he's in the middle of the floor. He's buck ass naked. And he is literally having sex with a fish. With a fish. So obviously we kicked the door about that time because he's a little off and things weren't yeah. going right. And he said, you, what are you gonna do with my girlfriend? And we said, where is your girlfriend? And he said, right there. And he points to the fish on the floor. That is the most bizarre case that I ever walked in on. What kind of fish? I think it was a trout. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of fish? Trout. All right, so I'll tell you the story. So my partner and I, one night, 4 to 12, we get called out to a short-stay motel in the Bronx. You know, it's where people meet because they can't normally meet in public due to marital obligations. The dump sheets are extra. And get called out there, comes over, you know, loud noises, calls for help. We go up there. I got my nightstick in my hand. I'm just about to pound on the door, and I hear a woman's voice scream, be a man and put it in my ass. And my partner and I just look at each other, and we can't stop laughing. I mean, we're like, like idiot children. We just can't stop laughing, right? So my partner goes, let's get the fuck out of here. I said, no. Oh, no. I says, come on. I says, what if someone is like, it's an episode of Pulp Fiction in there, and someone's in a gimp box. I says, we fucking leave, and, and you know, someone's in here getting fucked over. I says, we're going to get screwed. So I start pounding on the door, and then you hear a woman's voice yell. I said, I what did she say? I told you you're making too much noise. So we start laughing again. Door opens, and there's this little old man. He looked like Albert Einstein with crazy hair. He's wearing a pair of boxer shorts, and his testicles are hanging way past his boxer shorts. And I go, hey, Pop, I'm sorry to bother you. I says, can we come in for a minute? He goes, well, what's wrong? I says, well, you're making a lot of noise in there. We want to make sure everything's all right. He goes, I, I, I guess. So he lets us in. Granny's laying in the bed with the comforter up to her nose. I just walked through the, you know, I wasn't there to break their balls. I just walk around. I checked the bathroom to make sure no one was hiding with a two by four. And I says, all right, carry on, no problem. And as we're leaving, my partner, who's a smart ass, turns to the old lady, goes, did he put it in your ass? And the old lady goes, wouldn't you like to know? And then we started laughing again and we walked out, out, out of the motel. But I mean, here's two people in their 80s. You know, like they didn't wow. have, they, they didn't have an, so they had to have been married. Like, but I just thought that what great lengths a pair of 80 year olds would go to to have sex. That's amazing, 80 years old, 80, eight, wow. I, I did. I have. I have not seen that. I haven't seen that. Um, it is. I, I find it interesting that. How do I? How do I explain this? When I explain this, cops see the worst in people, and they see okay. the best people at their worst. Yeah. No, no matter what you you and everybody at some point in another, as, as you know, you could be rich, you could be poor, you could be black, white, Asian, doesn't matter that at some point in your life, whatever contact you have with a cop, you're either a victim or you're a criminal 90% of the time. Any, any, any kind of negative contact, you're either a victim or you're a criminal. In regard to that, <coughs> I have found that the majority of people, and I'm sure the same thing, you probably amplifies in New York City, the majority of people really 
um, give us a run for our money, so to speak, in regard to how they can act, what they do. I, I think I know what you, what you mean as far as you do, you see the best and the worst of people. And there are times where, you know, you tr as a police officer or a detective, you're trying to mediate something, right? You, you're not going in there to lock somebody up. You, you tr Sometimes you're actually there to save someone or, or from themselves. And you try talking to someone and you try explaining something to them and, and you're giving them a million and one chances for them to back out of something or de-escalate something. And like you said, th there's no talking to them. It's they're going to proceed. And, and, and sometimes that can end in their demise. Sometimes that can end in them being arrested. And, you know, I, I like to tell people that, that, that haven't worked in law enforcement. I said, cops are just civil servants. Mm -hmm. You know, they have jobs and families and problems like everybody else. They want to come into work, do their shift and go home. No one's, you know, no one, this isn't like the 1950s in the deep South where you didn't get along with the sheriff and he left you in a ditch at the end of town. You know, it's, it's the world's changed. Technology's changed that that doesn't go on anymore. And it hasn't gone on for 50 years, but you know, some people are hung up in the past about that stuff and, and just kind of like to beat that drum. The, um, in your career, in your early part of your career, when did you become a detective? Did you start I mean, what's the process, I should ask you? What is the process of becoming a detective at, at NYPD? And did you choose which division you wanted to try to go for? Uh, in New York, you have to work in an investigative unit for 18 months. And if you get good evaluations and, you know, everything is fine, you pass a round robin, which is a background check, you're promoted to detective. And detective is a lateral move. So it's not like you get to tell a cop. You have no power. You're not telling cops what to do. You make about $3,500 more and there's a little bit of dip. You work a little less hours, but you get less vacation time. Oh, oh, as far as working in my desired unit, I thought at originally early in my career with five years on the job, I want I put in for the narcotics division because I thought I'd really enjoy it. At first I did, but in New York, I mean, drugs, we're talking about the early 90s during the crack epidemic, they wanted numbers and we were doing buy and bust like three, four days a week and you're going out with a team arresting 10 15 people you mass processing an arrest and new york isn't like other places where you just fill out some paperwork and drop the person off uh-uh you've got to get online at central booking and you can be there for hours with this person mm. you got to go to grand jury that week and in new york we were locking up i mean the dregs of society because street people are the ones that are dealing drugs it's not the kingpins that are dealing drugs they use junkies to push their product. So if you're a heroin addict or a crackhead, you're selling 10 vials of crack or 10 decks of heroin for a vial or a deck to support your habits. So then we would lock these people up and they had hepatitis C and AIDS and they were always sick because they're living outdoors and they're always coughing on you. I always had a cold and I said, you know what? After 14 months of this, I said, I want out of here. I'm going back to patrol. And so many people try to talk me out of it. And I says, look, I, I don't care. I'm miserable here. I don't want to do this shit no more. I went back to a precinct and I was always a car guy. I grew up in a neighborhood that had more car thieves per capita than in probably anywhere in the world. And so I always knew what to look for. I was always getting into car chases on patrol. I made a lot of stolen car arrests. I caught the detention of the NYPD's auto crime division. And I was lucky because my old sergeant from narcotics who liked me a couple of years down the road was working in the auto crime division. So when I put in my application, he got me in there and I had a wonderful 20 year career. 
the auto crime division, anything with chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing VIN numbers on vehicles, on stolen vehicles for resale, identity theft, a lot of mafia cases, because mm -hmm. New York City is so large. In the 90s, we were averaging over 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. So it was like shooting oh fish crap. in a barrel. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I told you, I, I used to work with a Colorado Auto Theft investigator team, and, and it was a, a statewide thing. And we worked in regions there, and we were nowhere near that. I mean, we did a lot of car thefts, but wow, that's crazy. Oh, and we, like my, like this straight hits where you run a plate, it comes back stolen and you go in, you try to lock the guy up. But I, my specialty was tag jobs where they would change VIN numbers on cars for resale. So, and I was quite good with GM products, Fords, uh, Dodge, uh, BMWs, uh, Volkswagens, where they would steal a car, take all the VIN numbers off it, buy a salvage vehicle for pennies on the dollar, take all those VIN numbers off a wrecked car, put it on a stolen car, bounce the title out of state to wash the title and then re-register the vehicle. Well, yeah, that, that, and you did that for 10 years before you retired? Yeah. Because that's a long time to be doing that. The, um, did you, um, in the process of all of that, I think I told you, you know, before we started this interview, you know, most of our, were where they were chopping and they were selling and they were doing the VIN switches and everything, but it was all, it was all going, most of what we were doing was going to Mexico. Nothing really was going out of the country, um, like overseas out of the country. So you, you did quite a bit of that actually. Exporting the stolen vehicles out of the country. Yeah. I mean, oh, like yeah. overseas. Oh yeah. And different, and there were different ethnic groups doing it. We worked on a case where we had guys from Antigua, that was shipping a couple of stolen cars a month in a shipping container out of the Bronx to Antigua, Jamaica. Uh, our Queens office did a case where they were shipping motorcycles to Hungary. Uh, the biggest case I worked on where we, we had Chinese nationals in Brooklyn and they were shipping 30 stolen Audi A6s a month to Shanghai. So you, wow. you had this Chinese military intelligence officer supposedly retired. And he hooked up with a Jamaican middleman in the Bronx. The Jamaican knew all these steel guys, and they were stealing 30 Audis a month. That they would park in the street. They'd let them cool off to make sure they didn't have a low jack or GPS. They'd bring a couple at a time in the morning, you know, during rush hour. No one's paying attention. They'd drive two, three of these stolen cars into this. It was a large warehouse out in Brooklyn. Inside, you had Chinese nationals working. And two stolen Audis would go in a shipping container. They would let the air out of the tires so the vehicle would sit lower. They'd build a, a wooden frame above it. And then they would hoist one or two other cars in the shipping container so they could get three to four stolen vehicles per shipping container. From there, they, they had a phony bill of laden printed out. Make it, I, think they, I think it was under the guise it was a toy factory, if memory serves me correctly. They would have a trucking company come who didn't know anything that was going on trucked the container with three or four stolen Audis out to Newark, New Jersey. They were put on trains, railed across the United States. They would get put on shipping containers in Long Beach, California, where they were shipped to Shanghai. And this was going on for years That's until crazy. we actually, they got greedy. They, it just, I'm sure it started with 10 or 15. And then before you knew it, it was almost like Audis were becoming extinct. And it got so big that they were hitting car dealerships over the weekend. So we were losing like 10 Audis at a time. And we knew they were being shipped because they weren't turning up anywhere. Usually cars are getting stolen. 
the bones are turning up. You, mm-hmm. Your kid gets grabbed in a Honda Accord or you find a shell of a car somewhere. These things were just like UFOs had abducted them, not a trace. Disappearing. Yeah, and this guy got collared in um, uh, the Palisades Mall stealing a BMW. You would think that he, he ventured out and was stealing besides what he was supposed to be stealing. He got grabbed up in uh, Rockland County and he started spilling his guts. And we did a joint case with the de- uh joint case with the Westchester County District Attorney's Office with Janine Pirro when she was the DA up there. And uh, we were on multiple wiretaps. We had, because in the NYPD, you have so many cops. We had Chinese cops that could speak Mandarin and Cantonese. So they were monitoring the Asian wiretaps. We had Spanish detectives monitoring the car thieves wiretaps. And in the process of this international car theft ring, we we realized that these guys were in the murder for hire business. So they were talking about whacking this guy and I'll whack you. I'll whack you like I whacked that guy in Connecticut. So when we took that case down, we solved between 13 and 15 homicides because I'm these guys were also killing people. Right. And, you know, the, one of the main car thieves was also the getaway driver. To our knowledge, he never pulled the trigger in any of these homicides, but he was always able, willing to drive. For a couple of bucks so we said listen we know you're involved in these homicides you better start talking and he did and laid out chapter and verse you know and it wasn't just yeah. one guy it was a couple of guys that had done murders well that's crazy i mean what a career i mean i think that kudos congratulations for that i think that uh it's always it's always a um a really good feeling when you when you uh you, you bag and tag people like that i think that uh it creates, at least within myself, I, I was, I didn't do anything like that, but I did have the honor of uh, arresting two of America's most wanted uh, in my career. Oh, cool. And, yeah, that was pretty, I enjoyed that. One of them, both of them actually was working a task force when we grabbed them. And um, when we found out that they were both listed on America's most wanted, it was kind of like, yes, yeah, feather in my cap. I really enjoyed that. S- same time or? Uh, separate, two different times. They were about six months apart. What are their uh, names? Oh, you, you, um, you, I'm going to have to email those to you, Vic, oh, to yeah, be man. honest with you, because that, that's been, I've been retired for 22 years and that was about three years before I retired. So that's 25 years ago. I used to watch that show all the time. So it, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I'd be interested in who they were. There was a kid yeah. from my neighborhood that was a car thief that was actually on America's most wanted. No kidding. And, uh, he did jail time. Like he was on the run for years. He was a car thief slash burglar did time and about the mid nineties, my old partner and I pulled them over in an area where they conducive of dropping off stolen cars. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing down here? And he goes, listen, he goes, I did my time. I'm not doing shit anymore, which wasn't true because we had informants that were telling us that, yeah, he was still stealing. Yeah, it's, always, it's always, this is like two beers. How many, how much you have to drink? Two beers, always two beers. Right. You're doing but this again? Nope. But he wasn't a fugitive anymore. He had, you know, served federal and state time, and he was out. And then eventually, he went back. Yeah, this the first the first individual actually had kidnapped a thirteen uh, year old, and was traveling across the country with her, and she had contacted her um, her mother, and had said that um, you know he, the guy was in the shower and said that uh, we're here at this hotel, this motel, and. You know, he's in the shower right now, and I'm not sure what to do, but, you know, I'm starting to like this guy, so I don't know if I'm coming home. And uh, the mother contacted the, the FBI. The FBI contacted us and said he's in your area. They're supposed to be at this motel, and we set up a little sting. We borrowed a, um, 
Domino's, I'm going to give away some secrets here. We he, uh, borrowed uh, uh, Domino's pizza delivery, you know, when they used to, I don't know if they did it in New York or not, but they used to yep. put these little things on top of their car and then jacket and hat. And um, we uh, walked up behind this guy's car, took another car, beat up piece of shit car, and then put it right up next to this guy's bumper like the guy, the delivery guy hit the car. And it's like, no, man, you got to come out, you know, and I'm not coming out. Fuck it. This is my car. I don't care. He's going, yeah, but I care because, you know, my boss is going to kill me. This is his car and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Played the whole game. And as soon as he popped out the door, we snatched his ass. And um, it was kind of pretty. It was good. <laughs> Did he have a gun? I'm sorry? Was he armed? Did he have a gun? He, when he came out the door, he was not armed. We did find two weapons inside, inside yeah. the motel room. Yeah, we did find no. two weapons in there. Yeah. Had he known you, the cops were out there, probably would have ended a lot differently. Oh, I'm sure it would have. And then the other guy, actually, um, this was unfortunate for the lady, but this guy was a serial rapist. He had escaped prison out of New, uh, New Mexico. And uh, he happened to be walking downtown, and uh, one of his victims passed him. And uh, she kind of started trembling and freaked out because, I mean, he was like nasty ass. He, he, he would kidnap them. He would hold them for three, four, five days, uh, sexually assault them repeatedly. And um, he'd killed a couple. And then other ones he had just um, let go in the middle of nowhere. And she happened to be one of the ones that uh, let go in the middle of nowhere. So this, her boyfriend or, I don't know if it was her boyfriend or fiance, whatever it was, she had totally just fell apart. And he called the cops and said, yeah, he's here and this is who he is. So we contacted and verified that he was on the wanted, most wanted list. And um, we figured out where he was. And then we just kind of basically switched into plain clothes and then um, surrounded him where he was and uh, kind of just kicked steps in until we cornered his ass and he was copying by himself and tagged his ass too. And it was, again, one of the you know feathers in my cap. I really enjoyed doing that. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, made the newspapers in New Mexico. Made the newspapers in Colorado. It was nice. <laughs> That's a great collar. And those short stay motels, man, they're a cupboard of crime, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, you never know what you're going to get in a stolen cars or fugitives yep. or drug deals. Drugs. It's always. It's not just you know short stay. There's a, there's there's something going on. If people knew. People knew really what took place in these little motels. They oh, wouldn't be coming to those little motels. Especially right off the interstate, yeah. fugitive, all sorts of shit. We've had suicides. My first call ever, my first official call ever on the job was a suicide. And it was a suicide at a motel. And it, <clears throat> unfortunately, it led me into a lot more suicides after that because it wasn't like an introduction to my law enforcement career. Here you go. Here's a dead body. Um, I, I did not go into homicide investigation um, at that time, but as a patrol officer, I ran into a lot of suicides and homicides and things like this. Um, but my first call ever was that, and it was at a motel. And then after that, so many unattended deaths, drownings in the, in the hot tubs and um, shootings inside the motel. A uh, guy <coughs> had a domestic violence we went to with a guy literally got his finger shot off, half his hand shot off because the girl pointed the gun at him and he stuck his finger in the end of the barrel and said, you're not going to pull the trigger. She was, yes, I am. And pulled the trigger and shot half his hand off. Um, and, you know, this was in another motel. So 
Yeah, you're right. It's motels. I don't, I don't stay in motels. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you get what you pay for in a motel or, or a hotel. It's funny. The first DOA I got stuck with as a rookie cop, a guy killed another guy with a car door. There was a guy working on his car outside and he got into an argument with the neighbor and he leaned into the car. The guy came back and took the car door and slammed the guy's head in it. Wow. The guy, I mean, this is just how the Bronx operates, right? The guy was fucked up, right? His head blew up. He goes up into it, makes his way after a couple of minutes, makes his way. I'll never forget. It was a, a big foot of concrete steps, made his way up into the house, got a gun, gets a gun, right? And before he can go downstairs, collapses and drops dead on top of the coffee table. The detectives figured this out. But I mean, as a rookie cop, you just well, call, start, you know, and the detectives start asking questions downstairs. And yeah, well, you know, Hector hit him in the head when he was working on the car and slammed it. So we figured out. They got into an argument. The guy slammed his head in the car door. The guy went upstairs to get a gun to come down and shoot his ass and then collapsed over the car, had a brain hemorrhage, I think it was, and dropped dead. People, don't you love them? <laughs> My life's a lot more peaceful now. Yeah, it, it's. I, I have learned that. Although after I retired, um, I, I really, because I was fortunate in a position to retire, I really um, did too many phone calls by calling shit in. I would call stuff in, call stuff in. Pretty soon guys were going, hey, Sarge, you're working harder than when you were on the job and you just need to go home and relax because I just kept calling in too much stuff. I missed missed the action. I missed doing it. It was, um, well, like you said in one of your books, Three Wing Circus. Yeah, and and and... and and when that merry-go-round stops, like I always say, the NYP, a 20-year career with the NYPD is a merry-go-round. And once it stops, you get off. You've got to kind of find your place in life because yeah. it's still going on without you. And, you know, people ask me, do you miss it? I, I miss the camaraderie and I miss the action. I miss – I'd love right now if I could get into a car chase, but I can't do that anymore. I'm in my mid-50s. I can't run anymore. My, my reflexes aren't what they were. I know that. So I'd wind up getting myself hurt. I mean, the closest thing of the action adrenaline rush I get is playing softball one night a week. That's about it. But no, nothing can replace that for me. But And, and that's why I got into writing, because now I can live vicariously through myself. I can write. I can remember these stories, and I can tell these stories again. And people like you were nice enough to put me on their platforms. And it keeps my finger you know, on the pulse a little bit. Now, had you ever dreamed about being an author before? What gave you the, what, what gave you, what ignited that? Bored out of my mind. Um, I, I retired from the NYPD. I came to Florida. I became a cop in Florida. I hated it. <laughs> it was a lot different. Re-retired and friends and family said, you got all these stories. You, you know, you, you've had a wonderful career. You should start writing about these things. And I said, all right, let me see if I can pull this off. And I wrote one NYPD book. You got it up on the screen, NYPD to the looking glass. That started selling and before you knew it i've i've written six books four of which are nypd themed now had you had you ever written like that before i mean other than reports um had you written anything before that before you, you decided to write a book no no i just um all my books are just short stories i i, I can't write in chronological order so i'll have a chapter with a theme embarrassing moments 
There's embarrassing moments that happen to me in my NYPD career or police corruption. I'll have a chapter called Crossing Over the Dark Side, and I'll explain how the department looks at corruption and cops that I knew or famous stories about cops that went bad. Or Practical Jokers is a chapter in another one of my books about the shit that goes on in the locker room and cops pulling pranks on each other. I, I try to give the readers uh, a behind-the-scenes look into the NYPD that you wouldn't normally know. You know what I mean? It, it takes you backstage that television and movies and documentaries, things you just don't get to see. Yeah, that's a brilliant. I mean, I, I've, I have downloaded several of the books, and I plan on Thank reading you. them. I haven't had the opportunity before this conversation, but... Um, I love your titles and I love what they, I'm looking forward to what's inside each one of those books. I think that, uh, sharing those kind of stories is a, a wonderful opportunity to, like you said, live vicariously from what you used to do. Uh, I, I can relate to that. I missed that. I think that, uh, there are too many cops that retire and then, uh, unfortunately they don't last very long after they retire because they just don't want to do with themselves anymore. Cause it, as you know, being a cop is is like who it's not just what we are it's who we are yeah you know it's it, a lifestyle it's it, a lifestyle. it definitely is like they, the mobsters call it the life it's the same thing in law enforcement because you've got to live your yeah. life a different way you know what i mean it's it, in law enforcement you've got it or you should live your life on the straight and narrow you can't get duis you can't get locked up for domestic violence you can't steal cable you know what i mean you, you've got to live the, the life of an altar boy and once you retire, you've got all this knowledge and, and it, it's very target specific that doesn't really, unless you want to go into like a security gig, which that really wasn't for me. I just had no interest in it. You got to figure out what, you, you, what you're going to do with yourself or you're going to die on the vine. And, and you're right. Most I remember they, them telling us that when I got hired 36 years ago, that the average cop lived to be 55 years old and died within five years. So, you know, what was that movie, The Shawshank Redemption? Get get busy mm -hmm. living or get busy dying. I mean, yeah. you've got to figure something out. And you've got a lot of great stories. And I think you should write a book because, I mean, you just told two good stories. And I hope you email me with those guys' names because I'm interested in the story. And this this there's, there's such a big uh, demand for true crime and true crime stories and cops. I mean, you put on TV, Blue Blood, Chicago PD, people are dying for this stuff. Yep, the rookie oh, you, um, SWAT. Oh, I <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the rookie, the uh, SWAT, um, uh, uh, Blue Bloods, um, yeah, you name it. And, and I live vicariously through some of those, although it irritates my wife because I'd be going, they wouldn't do that. Right. Or why didn't they do this? Or they should have done that. But now she's kind of used to it and she starts doing the same thing. So I've kind of yeah, just put you out or that right. Well, now she knows the job. Yeah. She kind of goes, uh, she goes, they wouldn't do that. Would they? No, I don't think they would do that. It's like, no, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, what's it like on a crime scene? Let's help our uh, listeners and viewers understand when you walk into a crime scene, let's say a homicide. Well, in New York, so you've got so many specialized units in the NYPD, right? Like in a smaller police department, I'm sure. Well, I know this to be true because I worked for a small police department for a short time. You do a lot more. But like in New York, I walked into a homicide one time. My partner and I, we thought it was a cardiac. We go up into the six-story walk-up. There's a dead woman on the floor covered in blood. Her son's on top of her crying, mama, mama, mama. The apartment's been ransacked. So we tell him to get off his mother. We put him on the couch. And I get on the radio. I ask for the sergeant. I ask for PDU, which is precinct detective unit. I call a bus, which is an ambulance, even though 
it's obvious the woman is is deceased. You still have to have EMS come and pronounce them dead. You call for the medical examiner. So you've already got the ball in motion. You don't want to touch anything. I mean, that's a biggie. Even sometimes just remove the person and move yourself from the scene and have crime scene come in. And then our crime scene is a crime scene unit is what season NYPD detectives that, you know, take blood samples and they do, they work their magic in there. Once they leave, then the detectives come in, they start poking around and looking at things. In the meantime, you've gotten, the, you know, all the pertinent information off of whoever's been around witnesses, the detectives go around the neighborhood, they start canvassing, what, you know, did this woman have any problems with anybody? And what this particular homicide, we put this kid on the couch briefly, and we just started asking him, we didn't put the screws to him, we're just asking him, you know, when was the last time you saw your mother? And he went from being hysterical crying to all of a sudden he was measured and repeating our questions, buying himself some time. The detectives took him into the precinct, and I was tasked with vouchering some things. The crime scene unit handed me a bunch of stuff, and I was tasked with vouchering it. And in New York, the first uh, uniform member that's on the scene is responsible for identifying the, uh, the the deceased the following day. So you've got to fill out this little piece of oak tag. It's called a 95 tag. It's got all my information on it. It's got the deceased information on it. You tie it around their big toe. So when the body goes to the morgue for autopsy, you have to respond the following day to identify the body. Following morning, I go down to the morgue. And New York, I mean, there's so many people that die down there, up there. And um, it's a funny story. I, there's a skeleton crew. I hand this kid a piece of paper. I says, I'm here to you know, identify this victim. He goes into this refrigerated room, wheels out a gurney, pulls off the sheet. It's a black guy with a beard. I said, no, Hispanic female. Throws the sheet over the black guy, pushes him into the refrigerator room, comes out with another body, flips the sheet off. It's a Spanish wino. I go, dude, I didn't come here to see everybody that got fucking killed in the Bronx last night. I'm here to see this woman. I go, let me in there. I go into this refrigerator room and it's like a horror movie. There's like eight or 10 gurneys with dead people. Even though it's refrigerated, they still smell. I saw my handwriting on, on the foot, you know, that tag. I pull the sheet off. I identify the woman. I go back to the precinct that morning. It's now it's about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. All the detectives are high five and, and you know, celebrate. I'm like, well, what, what the fuck happened? And. The night before, the guy wasn't giving it up, and he didn't ask for a lawyer, but he wanted to go home. So the detectives told him, yeah, yeah, go home, because they knew they were going to go make a run at him at 6 o'clock in the morning and pull him out of bed and try to talk to him again. When they went to the building, the young man that had stabbed his mother to death was in the hallway, and his uh, his uncles were yelling at him, what's going on? What happened to your mother? And he gave it up. And thank God the detectives spoke Spanish. They were in the hallway. They heard the conversation. And then they brought him into the station house and he repeated it. And now yada, yada, yada. He's in jail for 30 years. But in New York, especially, you know, as a young cop, you learn what a crime scene, try to touch as little as possible, safeguard it. Don't let people go traipsing into the crime scene and let the specialized units do their work. Yeah, the contrast to that is that uh, our department was a smaller department, and uh, we did have detectives that would take over the case. But as an initial officer, when we showed up, we had to uh, check for signs of life, you know, call call an ambulance, um, you know, call the coroner, uh, get them running if we knew for sure that there were, you know, absolute lividity and everything else wouldn't point to the fact that they're absolutely deceased. Um, get that ball rolling, obviously get a detective coming down. And then we had to 
There were so many things that we ended up having to do before the detective even got there. And then, oh, your responsibilities are probably a lot more than ours were because, <laughs> like I said, we just got on the phone and started calling these units and they just start showing up and you take a step back and they tell you what to do. Yeah, it was interesting when I told you about my first call being a suicide, that once we got the coroner there and the detective there, and my FTO, of course, was um, telling me to do this, do this, do that, do this. And then when the coroner got there, the coroner says, okay, come over here. I'm going to show you how to check this and how to look for lividity, how to go this, how to, you know, touch that, how to do this. So I got like an education for the like two hour time period while I learned from them what to do with a dead body. And then unfortunately, seems like that followed me the rest of my career. And I had five suicides between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day one year, um, made for a sucky Christmas. It really, really changes your perspective when you knock on somebody's door and, and they're going, hey, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And you go, can you please step out here for a second? And we need to talk to you. Um, so yeah, it, 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 I wanted to kind of share the perspective between a very large department and, and, a, and a smaller to medium department because even though we have detectives, we had to take a, a, a more proactive approach to investigating the scene with a preliminary report and then present that to the detective and then they would follow up with it. Um, well, I'll tell you, in, in New York, right, I don't know how many medical examiners are working on any given day, but I'm sure there's not more than one or two, maybe three. So when someone dies in a house or an apartment, you know, unless it's in the street in public view or it's a homicide where they're not going anywhere. Um, and it could, like I said, it could be an old lady that's a hundred years old, dies in her apartment or a suicide. Yeah. You have to wait there. It's called sitting on a DOA. So once everything's been ruled, you know, the detectives and everything, you got to wait on the medical examiner. And I, there's stories in my books that are funny with these medical examiners. And you can, you know, it, usually the young guys get stuck with these calls. And you're sitting in an apartment or a house with someone that might have been dead for days or weeks or hours. The smell is unbearable. I learned a lot of tricks like old timers used to teach me. Like after it was determined it wasn't suspicious death, you go to the kitchen for a pot um, for coffee grinds and you pour the coffee grinds in a pot and you burn the pot on the stove so the the smell of burnt coffee grinds will permeate the house and mask the smell of a doa and you're sitting there with this dead person right and you just you know you get curious you start looking around and you're looking at the photos i did i'm just trying to figure out like what kind of person they were and their family's going to miss them or provided they even had family some of these older mm -hmm. people and the medical examiner i mean they were a fucking trip I mean, they're usually, I mean, my experience was usually middle-aged, overweight men, overworked, would show up, eating a slice of pizza, drinking a cup of coffee. Yeah, he's dead, all right. I mean, gallows humor. Yeah, you know what? Not a suspicious death. This body, you tell the family they can call a funeral home or, yeah, you know what? We're going to want to take a look at this. I'll call the morgue wagon. And then you got to wait for those fucking guys. And they're a trip. You know, anybody that drives around in a van picking up dead bodies, they've, they've got a, a bizarre sense of humor. But, I mean, it's a whole process in New York. And, I mean, as a rookie cop, we had to go to the morgue. And it, it wasn't like an episode of Quincy where you've got one slab and one guy in a white coat. It was like going to a Jiffy Lube or a Costco on a Sunday when they're changing tires. I mean, you, you've got like eight slabs going and they're cutting and pulling people's skulls off and weighing organs and scales. And I'm like, what the fuck? So yeah, you definitely get to see a lot. New York is the 
worst of the worst with some of this stuff. Yeah, that is, um, we had, I had to go to autopsies, which I didn't like that. I could never understand. One of my uh, best friends, in fact, my FTO, him in my first uh, job in law enforcement, my FTO, we became very good friends. And he, um, he ended up marrying somebody that was a coroner, female that was a coroner. It's like, how, her name was Chris. And it's like, how, how can you do this? What attracted you to become a coroner? I can handle a dead body. Didn't have any issues with that. That was just kind of a, there it was, it happened. You know, like you said, I never heard the coffee ground thing though. I wish I would have known that. We used to do Vicks. Yeah. Put, put Vicks up here so that you just snort in Vicks. But the, uh, uh, never heard the coffee ground thing, but it's like, how the hell, why? She said, well, I'm just fascinated by dead bodies. I went, well, keep doing that because I'm not. <laughs> nope, I'll bring them to you. You can cut them up and look at them and we're going to leave it at that. Yeah, that's not a job I would uh, gravitate towards. I mean, like I, like I said, I've been to the morgue. I've had a deal with the dead in New York. When you're that rookie cop first on the scene, you've got to search the dead for valuables. And you know how it is. Someone's dead a couple yep. of days. You've got to throw a sheet over them and rock the body so they'll pop. And then you get that smell. And I mean, it's just overwhelming. <laughs> anybody that likes that is, is, is a ghoul. I, I just, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not talking about a medical examiner, but I mean, you know, there were cops running around with cameras, fucking taking photos and shit. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to. I, I saw it once. You know, you know what I mean? Why do I want to, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not my yeah. daughter's wedding. You, you know what I mean? Like, why would I want a photo of this? Nope, nope, nope. Not for me. Not for me. We had a guy that was, uh, unfortunately he was dead for two weeks, had, uh, fallen, hit his head, died. And, uh, it was a uh, winter. So the heat in the house, probably 80, I think it was 80, 81 years old. He had turned the heat up to 90 degrees in his house. So he said, and it was completely closed up. And uh, yeah, it was not pretty. That was, that actually was my last, my last death uh, before I retired, retired, um, was that one. And uh, it's like, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that uh, going away present, we'll call it. You'll never forget that smell. No. You just, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's unmistakable. You know what I mean? It's, uh, yeah. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Um, Let's look at the lighter side. I know we, we're going over just a little bit here, but if you got a few more minutes, um, cops have great sense of humor. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah. Oh, the, the shit that used to go on in the station house. I, I like to tell the story when I was a detective. I'm sitting in the office. And when you're, you're a detective and you're working with 20, 30 detectives in an office, you got 20 pairs of trained eyes watching your every move. They don't fucking miss a trick had a date. I changed my clothes because, you know, getting out in a couple of minutes, I was going to go out. I go to make myself a cup of coffee. One of them soaks my chair with ice water. I got a wet ass. I go upstairs. I change my clothes. I go back downstairs. Across the street from our office was a pet store. I bought a bag of about 100 crickets that people use to feed lizards. I got a Slim Jim. I went into the parking lot. This is when you work in auto crime. I opened up the guy's car. I popped open. I popped open the bag and I poured the crickets in the back seat of his car. And you know, he got in the car to drive home. Scared the shit out of him. Slammed on the brakes. Got fucking locusts bouncing around his head. Guy wound up having to sell the car. Like he roach bombed it a couple of times, but those things keep fucking breeding. I mean, it was a shitbox car, but still, he had to wind up selling it. So, guys are always pulling pranks and practical jokes on each other. You you tend not to. Rookies are the worst. 
they're, they're the cruelest to each other. It's like kids at a schoolyard. There, there was a guy, uh, he was older. He got hired. Like you had a bunch of rookies in their early 20s. And then you had this one guy that was like 30. He really didn't have anything in common with these kids. And he was socially awkward. And this is the early 90s when Rogaine first came out. And the guy made the mistake of leaving a bottle of Rogaine in his locker with the locker open. So the guys got a hold of his Rogaine bottle. They poured the contents in another container and then they filled it up with, with varnish. Oh, jeez. So then the guy goes and fucking shellacks the top of his head and he had to be restrained. Like he lost his fucking mind for a couple of minutes. Like, they had to really like calm him down. So yeah, th- there's always fucking around going in the station house. And you're right. Cops do have a bizarre sense of humor. One of the funniest one liners I heard was early 90s. And you had these kids that were wilding in packs and beating up homeless people and shit. And it was around Halloween and a, a gang of kids the night before had beaten up this homeless guy and cut his ear off. So they're like, be careful with these kids with razor blades. They sliced off the ear of a homeless guy up on, you know, whatever by the park. And this old timer sitting next to me goes, I hope that motherfucker didn't wear glasses. And I mean, I almost fell out of the chair. You know what I mean? It's cops just have those one liners. You know what I mean? And, you know, we didn't rehearse it. I mean, how often does someone get their ear sliced off? So it wasn't like an old joke passed down to generation. Cops are quite witty. Well, I, I, I will put a disclaimer in here. You know, when you deal with the kind of people that we deal with, the situations that we deal with, we deal with death. We deal with the best people at their worst and the worst people at their worst. Um, you have to have a sense of humor. It kind of protects us. Oh, yeah. And and it's funny because you run into different in New York, you run into cops that work in different places that had different problems or different act, interactions. So I can't give up names, but I knew a lot of guys when I worked in narcotics, I knew a lot of cops that worked in the Hollywood precincts, you know, in the Upper East Side, Upper West Side of Manhattan. So they were always running into famous people. And a story a guy told me, and I can't say the names because I don't know what to be true, but he tells the story of one day. There's this cab driver screaming and blowing the horn at the police. So they stop. And there's a very famous actor in the back seat of the cab, passed out drunk, carrying, you know, just drunk out of his mind. And he got into an argument with the cab driver and fell asleep. So they're like, holy shit, this is so-and-so. So they get him out of the cab and uh, he's, you know, just out of it. So they start going through his pockets and they find the phone number to another famous actor. So like, holy shit, like, what are the odds of this? I've got this guy's phone number. So they call this other famous actor and he says, listen, we got your buddy here. He's drunk. Can we bring him over your place? He goes, oh, God, no, I don't want that fucking drunk in my house. He goes, take him to a hotel and he hangs up. So they bring this famous actor to a hotel and there was a couple of hotels in Manhattan that specialized in this sort of thing. So they brought him up to this hotel, you know, famous hotel, and they go, hi, can they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been here before. Yeah. And they have the bellhop. So the cops and the bellhop get in an elevator with this guy, and he was a large man. And there was this attractive female cop in the elevator, and they said, like, the guy's drunk, and he's standing against the elevator, and all of a sudden he's, like, coming to, and he sees, like, the attractive female cop, and he's like, hey, do you know who I am? Maybe we should get a drink. And she's like, get the fuck out of here. And they brought him up to his room, and he slept it off, and that was the end of it. But you do hear these wild stories. This story I can tell. We had this thing with um, stolen motorcycles in lower Manhattan. So I was in auto crime. They put us 
with these plainclothes cops from the first precinct in lower Manhattan to see if we could pick off these motorcycle thieves. So while we're down there, this Manhattan cop tells me this story and it was wild. He said that, um, I don't know this to be true, but I mean, why would this guy make it up? He said, Harvey Keitel lived in Tribeca and Harvey Keitel was a great guy. And from time to time, when he was researching a part for a movie or Harvey Keitel would stop at the precinct and be cops out front. And he would go, Hey, you guys mind if I ride around the back seat for a while? Now, you're not allowed to do that. But who the fuck is going to tell Harvey Keitel no? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. Harvey Keitel gets in the car and he's answering calls with them. They're going around with Harvey Keitel for the night. And the cop told me, he goes, one time they're in an apartment on a domestic violence or a domestic fight or whatever. And the, this couple is screaming at each other and the cops are trying to break them apart. And all of a sudden the husband looks over and goes, what the fuck is Harvey Keitel doing here? So it kind of like totally diffused the situation. Now the guy wants his autograph and you know, agreed to behave. And they said like Harvey Keitel was mysterious. Like he would ride around for a while and go, guys, I got to get back. You mind dropping me off at the station? Ask like, sure, Mr. Keitel. Like who's going to tell Winston Wolf from Pulp Fiction? No, like, yeah, that would exactly. Be, you know, <laughs> well, you get to hear and hear things from different guys and girls about what goes on in different places. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. My my celebrity story with that is I got to I got to drive Daryl Hannah around. Oh wow! A little bit, yeah. They said uh, if you showed up at the precinct, they wanted to go check out. We uh, I don't know if you know anything about Colorado Springs, but they've got a, a park out there called Garden of the Gods, and it's a beautiful park. It's 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 it is alleged to be um, from the Native Americans. It's supposed to be spiritual and it's got these huge red rocks everywhere. It's beautiful. It was just beautiful. And she wanted to go out there and watch the bears, literally the bears. And she said, can um, we'd like to know if you want to take her out. I'm the sergeant, right? So I, I threw myself on the sword and I said, well, I'm the sergeant. I'll be glad to take you out there to watch the bears. So we sat out in the park watching the bears. It was fun. It was good. What year was this? That would be 1997, 98. Okay. Yeah, she, she's a very attractive woman, tall from what? Very, yes. Very, very nice lady. We talked, we just had, I didn't know what to say to her, to be honest. It was I like, I, I, it, I, you know, I didn't want to really go uh, fan, you know, drooling all over her. But it was kind of like I tried to have a conversation with her, like, oh, what are you doing? And she said, well, we're doing a documentary. And so I kind of edged that conversation a little bit more. And, you know, we drove around to two or three different places looking for bears. And when we found some bears, uh, a mama and her two cubs that were up in trees, she said, oh, stop here, stop here. Can you put the spotlight up there? And, you know, I did everything she wanted to do. Then pretty soon she said, well, okay, I saw enough. Can you take me back? And I took her back and it was like, just as, just as they got there, my wife and kids showed up to the department. And um, they missed her as she was leaving. Uh, it, was like, it was like, holy shit, I met Daryl Hannah. It was, um, yeah, it had to be 97 or 98. It was good. It was pretty fun. I, I loved it. And then I met Reba McIntyre, and I did security for her. Um, and she said, looked at me and said, you're too skinny. And I said, what? She said, you're too skinny. And she gave me half her sandwich. And said, nice here, eat, yeah, here, eat this. So yeah, that, those are my two celebrity stories. It was. There's a chapter in one of my books. I think it's the NYPD's Flying Circus. There's a chapter called Rubbing Elbows. And it's about, it, it, I, I've met countless famous people in New York. 
And there's a couple of funny stories in there running into Kevin Bacon, John Lovitz. John Lovitz was a great guy. Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond. Great guy. Just, I mean, that down one. to earth. Yeah, just couldn't couldn't have been nicer, appreciative. John Lovitz wanted to get an autograph for his daughter at the U.S. Open. And uh, I saw him standing there, and I started breaking his balls because he was doing the Subway commercials. So I'm going, eat fresh. And then I'm doing, when he was in Seinfeld, good for you, Jack. And I'm busting his balls. And he goes, oh, wise ass. He goes, maybe you could do me a favor. And I go, what's up? He goes, I want to get an autograph for my daughter or some tennis player. I go, hang out. I go into the locker room because it was it was it was towards the end of the U.S. Open and uh, really cool tennis. But I can't think of the guy's name. wasn't really famous, but I went up to him. I go, "Hey, you got a second? He goes, "What's up?" I go, "You you watch Saturday Night Live?" He goes, "Yeah." I go, "Do you remember John Lovitz?" He goes, "Yeah." I go, "He's outside. He wants your autograph." He goes, "Get the fuck out of here!" He thought I was pulling his leg. I go, "No, he's out there now." I just there's a couple of cops drinking coffee with him. Came out. Lovitz was taking photos with us. Like couldn't have been nicer. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And you know, and he hasn't changed. You look. I saw him the other day on television in in uh, some some game show, and um, he looks like he hasn't aged a bit. Actually, funny as hell he guy. That's funny. You should say that he does. Yeah, he does look the same. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I uh, well, let's tell everybody about the rest of your books before I choke to death. Let's talk to. I think you got six books out, and um, you can get them on Amazon. And tell us about them, please, and how they can get them. Sure. So NYPD through the looking glass stories from inside America's largest police department. That's a behind the scenes look at the NYPD. Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. That's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry, who steals your car, where your car goes, what happens in a chop shop. And there's also stories about how to protect your car. The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. There's a ton of funny stories in there, including a cop that I knew that stole a horse and carriage for a wild ride through Central Park. <laughs> NYPD Law and Disorder opens up with a story called Embarrassing Moments. I'm in uniform. This is a true story. I had to use a public restroom in emergency. I hang my gun belt on the hook. I drop my pants. I'm getting ready for liftoff and a bunch of teenagers run into the next stall and try pulling my gun belt over the wall. I got into a hockey fight with this kid playing tug of war with him. P.S. I kept my gun. Um, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate is about and well there's a picture of an altar boy uh not an altar boy but a kid in a catholic high school uniform getting chased out of a out of a church by a priest that happened to me confessing one too many sins can lead to a foot chase and dickheads and debauchery and other ingenious ways to die is a uh, politically incorrect guide to how to live longer all my books they're paperback they're 10 bucks or 299 ebook download and they're all available on amazon so just go to amazon and type in my name vic vic ferrari like the car and you can read 20 percent of my books for free to preview them that's fantastic and i'll make sure that the link to the um website is available to everybody so you can just follow the link it'll be in the show notes that'll make it easy for everyone so that they can easily get those books this has been a fantastic conversation vic i'm i am ecstatic that we were able to connect and uh, thank you very much for your service with the NYPD, and I appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your experience with us today. Michael, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I will uh, make sure that uh, we need to do this again sometime and maybe expand on oh, some, more, some more things. I think we can have a, a really uh, fun conversation if I don't die first. <laughs> You'll be fine. So thank you very much, everybody. Please be sure to look at the show notes, follow the Amazon link to find Vic's books, and uh, I look forward to seeing you the next time.
Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform.